Book Six, Part One, of History of the Kings of Britain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth. Translated by Aaron Thompson and J. A. Giles. Chapter 1. Gratian, being advanced to the throne, is killed by the common people. The Britons desire the Romans to defend them against Guanius and Melga. But Gratian Municeps, hearing of the death of Maximian, seized the crown and made himself king. After this, he exercised such tyranny that the common people fell upon him in a tumultuous manner and murdered him. When this news reached other countries, their former enemies returned back from Ireland, and bringing with them the Scots, Norwegians and Dacians, made dreadful devastations with fire and sword over the whole kingdom from sea to sea. Upon this most grievous calamity and oppression, ambassadors are dispatched with letters to Rome to beseech with tears and vows of perpetual subjugation that a body of men might be sent to revenge their injuries and drive out the enemy from them. The ambassadors in a short time prevailed so far that, unmindful of past injuries, the Romans granted them one legion, which was transported in a fleet to their country, and there speedily encountered the enemy. At last, after the slaughter of a vast multitude of them, they drove them entirely out of the country and rescued the miserable people from their outrageous cruelty. Then they gave orders for a wall to be built between Albania and Dera, from one sea to the other, for a terror to the enemy and safeguard to the country. At that time Albania was wholly laid waste by the frequent invasions of barbarous nations, and whatever enemies made an attempt upon the country met with a convenient landing place there so that the inhabitants were diligent in working upon the wall, which they finished partly at the public, partly upon private charge. Chapter 2 Gwythelin's Speech to the Britons at the Romans Returning Home The Romans, after this, declared to the Britons that they should not be able for the future to undergo the fatigue of such laborious expeditions, and that it was beneath the dignity of the Roman state to harass so great and brave an army, both by land and sea, against base and vagabond robbers, but that they ought to apply themselves to the use of arms, and to fight bravely in defending to the utmost of their power their country, riches, wives, children, and what is dearer than all these, their liberty and lives. As soon as they had given them this exhortation, they commanded all the men of the island that were fit for war 
to appear together at London, because the Romans were about to return home. When, therefore, they were all assembled, Gwethelin, the Metropolitan of London, had orders to make a speech to them, which he did in these words. Though I am appointed by the princes here present to speak to you, I find myself rather ready to burst into tears than to make an eloquent oration. It is a most sensible affliction to me to observe the weak and destitute state into which you have fallen since Maximian drew away with him all the forces and youth of this kingdom. You that were left were people wholly inexperienced in war and occupied with other employments, as tilling the ground and several kinds of mechanical trades, so that when your enemies from foreign countries came upon you, as sheep wandering without a shepherd, they forced you to quit your folds, till the Roman power restored you to them again. Must your hopes, therefore, always depend on foreign assistance? And will you never use yourselves to handle arms against a band of robbers that are by no means stronger than yourselves, if you are not dispirited by sloth and cowardice? The Romans are now tired with the continual voyages wherewith they are harassed to defend you against your enemies. They rather choose to remit to you the tribute you pay them than undergo any longer this fatigue by land and sea. Because you were only the common people at the time when we had soldiers of our own, do you therefore think that manhood has quite forsaken you? Are not men, in the course of human generation, often the reverse of one another? Is not a ploughman often the father of a soldier, and a soldier of a ploughman? Does not the same diversity happen in a mechanic and a soldier? Since then, in this manner, one produces another, I cannot think it possible for manhood to be lost among them. As, then, you are men, behave yourselves like men. Call upon the name of Christ, that he might inspire you with courage to defend your liberties. No sooner had he concluded his speech than the people raised such a shout that one would have thought them on a sudden inspired with courage from heaven. Chapter 3 The Britons are again cruelly harassed by Guanius and Melga. After this, the Romans encouraged the timorous people as much as they could and left them patterns of their arms. They likewise commanded towers, having a prospect towards the sea, to be placed at proper distances all along the south coast, where their ships were, and from whence they feared the invasions of the barbarians. But, according to the proverb, it is easier to make a hawk of a kite than a scholar of a ploughman. All learning to him is but as a pearl before swine. Thus no sooner had the Romans taken their farewell of them than the two leaders, Guanius and Melga, 
issued forth from their ships, in which they had fled over into Ireland, and with their band of Scots, Picts, Norwegians, Dacians, and others, whom they had brought along with them, seized upon all Albania, as far as the very wall. Understanding likewise that the Romans were gone never to return any more, they now, in a more insolent manner than before, began their devastations in the island. Hereupon the country fellows upon the battlements of the walls sat night and day with quaking hearts, not daring to stir from their seats, and readier for flight than making the least resistance. In the meantime, the enemies ceased not with their hooks to pull them down headlong and dash the wretched herd to pieces upon the ground, who gained at least this advantage by their speedy death, that they avoided the sight of that most deplorable calamity which forthwith threatened their relations and dearest children. Such was the terrible vengeance of God for that most wicked madness of Maximian in draining the kingdom of all its forces, who, had they been present, would have repulsed any nation that invaded them, an evident proof of which they gave by the vast conquests they made abroad, even in remote countries, and also by maintaining their own country in peace while they continued here. But thus it happens when a country is left to the defence of country clowns. In short, quitting their high wall and their cities, the country people are forced again to fly and to suffer a more fatal dispersion, a more furious pursuit of the enemy, a more cruel and general slaughter than before. And like lambs before wolves, so was that miserable people torn to pieces by the merciless barbarians. Again, therefore, the wretched reminder sent letters to Agitus, a man of great power among the Romans, to this effect. To Agitus, thrice consul, the groans of the Britons. And after some few other complaints they add, The sea drives us to the barbarians, and the barbarians drive us back to the sea. Thus are we tossed to and fro between two kinds of death, either being drowned or put to the sword. Notwithstanding this most moving address, they procured no relief, and the ambassadors returning back in great heaviness declared to their countrymen the repulse which they had suffered. Chapter 5 Gwithelin desires succours of Aldroan. Hereupon, after a consultation together, Gwithelin, Archbishop of London, passed over into Lesser Britain, called then Armorica, or Latavia, to desire assistance of their brethren. At that time Aldroan reigned there, being the fourth king from Conan, to whom, as has already been related, Maximian had given that kingdom. This prince, being a prelate of so great dignity, arrived, received him with honour, and inquired after the occasion of his coming. To which Gwethelin, Your Majesty can be no stranger to the misery 
which we, your Britons, have suffered, which may even demand your tears, since the time that Maximian drained our island of its soldiers to people the kingdom which you enjoy, and which, God grant you, may long continue to enjoy in peace. For against us, the poor remains of the British race, all the people of the adjacent islands have risen up and made an utter devastation in our country, which then abounded with all kinds of riches, so that the people are now wholly destitute of all manner of sustenance, but what they can get in hunting. Nor had we any power or knowledge of military affairs left among us to encounter the enemy. For the Romans are tired of us, and have absolutely refused their assistance, so that now, deprived of all other hope, we come to implore your clemency, that you would furnish us with forces, and protect a kingdom, which is of right your own, from the incursions of barbarians. For who but yourself ought, without your consent, to wear the crown of Constantine and Maximian, since the right your ancestors had to it is now devolved upon you. Prepare then your fleet, and go with me. Behold, I deliver the kingdom of Britain into your hands. To this Aldrin made answer, There was a time formerly when I would not have refused to accept of the island of Britain if it had been offered me for I do not think that there was anywhere a more fruitful country while it enjoyed peace and tranquillity. But now, since the calamities that have befallen it, it has become of less value and odious both to me and all other princes. But above all things, the power of the Romans was so destructive to it that nobody could enjoy any settled state or authority in it without loss of liberty and bearing the yoke of slavery under them. And who would not prefer the possession of a lesser country with liberty to all the riches of that island in servitude? The kingdom that is now under my subjection I enjoy with honour, and without paying homage to any superior, so that I prefer it to all other countries, since I can govern it without being controlled. Nevertheless, out of respect to the right that my ancestors for many generations have had to your island, I deliver to you my brother Constantine with two thousand men, that with the good providences of God he may free your country from the inroads of barbarians, and may obtain the crown for himself, for I have a brother called by that name who is an expert soldier, and in all other respects an accomplished man. If you please to accept of him, I will not refuse to send him with you, together with the said number of men. For indeed a larger number I do not mention to you, because I am daily threatened with disturbances from the Gauls. He had scarcely done speaking, before the archbishop returned him thanks, and when Constantine was called in, broke out into these expressions of joy. Christ conquers! Christ commands, Christ reigns, behold the king of desolate Britain, 
be Christ only present, and behold our defence, our hope, and our joy. In short, the ships being got ready, the men, who were chosen out from all parts of the kingdom, were delivered to Gwethelin. Chapter 5 Constantine, being made King of Britain, leaves three sons. When they had made all necessary preparations, they embarked and arrived at the port of Totnes, and then without delay assembled together the youth that was left in the island, and encountered the enemy, over whom, by the merit of the holy prelate, they obtained the victory. After this, the Britons, before dispersed, flocked together from all parts, and in a council held at Silcester, promoted Constantine to the throne, and there performed the ceremony of his coronation. They also married him to a lady, descended from a noble Roman family, whom Archbishop Guithelin had educated, and by whom the king afterwards had three sons, named Constans, Aurelius Ambrosius, and Uther Pendragon. Constans, who was the eldest, he delivered to the church of Amphibalus in Winchester, that he might take there upon him the monastic order. But the other two, viz. Aurelius and Uther, he committed to the care of Guithelin for their education. At last, after ten years were expired, there came a certain Pict, who had entered his service, and under pretence of holding some private discourse with them, in a nursery of young trees, where nobody was present, stabbed him with a dagger. Chapter 6 Constans is by Vortigern crowned King of Britain. Upon the death of Constantine, a dissension arose among the nobility about a successor to the throne. Some were for setting up Aurelius Ambrosius, others Uther Pendragon, others again some other persons of the royal family. At last, when they could come to no conclusion, Vortigern, consul of the Gewissians, who was himself very ambitious of the throne, went to Constant the monk, and thus addressed himself to him. You see your father is dead, and your brothers on account of their age are incapable of the government. Neither do I see any of your family besides yourself, whom the people ought to promote to the kingdom. If you will therefore follow my advice, I will on condition of your increasing my private estate, dispose the people to favour your advancement, and free you from that habit, notwithstanding that it is against the rule of your order. Constance, overjoyed at the proposal, promised with an oath that upon these terms he would grant him whatever he would desire. Then Vortigern took him, and investing him in his regal habiliments, conducted him to London, and made him king, though not with the free consent of the people. Archbishop Guithelin was then dead, nor was there any other that durst perform the ceremony of his unction, on account of his having quitted the monastic order. However, this proved no hindrance to his coronation, for Vortigern himself performed the ceremony instead of a bishop. Chapter 7 
Vortigern treacherously contrives to get King Constans assassinated. Constans, being thus advanced, committed the whole government of the kingdom to Vortigern, and surrendered himself up so entirely to his counsels that he did nothing without his order. His own incapacity for government obliged him to do this, for he had learnt anything else rather than state affairs within his cloister. Vortigern became sensible of this, and therefore began to deliberate with himself what course to take to obtain the crown, of which he had been before extremely ambitious. He saw that now was his proper time to gain his end easily, and when the kingdom was wholly entrusted to his management, and Constans, who bore the title of king, was no more than the shadow of one, for he was of a soft temper, a bad judge in matters of right, and not in the least feared, either by his own people or by the neighbouring states. And as for his two brothers, Uther Pendragon and Aurelius Ambrosius, they were only children in their cradles, and therefore incapable of the government. There was likewise this further misfortune, that all the older persons of the nobility were dead, so Vortigern seemed to be the only man surviving that had craft, policy, and experience in matters of state. And all the rest in a manner children, or raw youths, who only inherited the honours of their parents and relations that had been killed in the former wars. Vortigern, finding a concurrence of so many favourable circumstances, contrived how he might easily and cunningly depose Constans the monk, and immediately establish himself in his place. But in order to do this, he waited until he had first well established his power and interest in several countries. He therefore petitioned to have the king's treasures and his fortified cities in his own custody, pretending there was a rumour that the neighbouring islanders designed an invasion of the kingdom. This being granted him, he placed his own creatures in these cities to secure them for himself. Then having formed a scheme how to execute his treasonable designs, he went to the king and represented to him the necessity of augmenting the number of his domestics, that he might more safely oppose the invasion of the enemy. "'Have not I left all things to your disposal?' said Constance. "'Do what you will to that, so that they be but faithful to me.' Vortigern replied, "'I am informed that the Picts are going to bring the Dacians and Norwegians in upon us, with a design to give us very great annoyance. I would therefore advise you, and in my opinion is the best course you can take, that you maintain some Picts in your court, who may do you good service among those of that nation. For if it is true that they are preparing to begin a rebellion, you may employ them as spies upon their countrymen.' in their plots and their stratagems, so as to easily escape them. This was the dark treason of a secret enemy, for he did not recommend this out of regard to the safety of Constance, but because he knew the Picts to be a giddy people, and ready for all manner of wickedness, so that in a fit of drunkenness or passion they might easily be incensed against the king, and make no scruple to assassinate him. And such an accident, when it should happen, would make an open way for his accession to the throne, which he so often had in view. 
Hereupon he dispatched messengers into Scotland, with an invitation to a hundred Pictish soldiers, whom accordingly he received into the king's household. And when admitted, he showed them more respect than all the rest of the domestics, by making them several presents, and allowing them a luxurious table, insomuch that they looked upon him as the king. So great was the regard they had for him, that they made songs of him about the streets, the subject of which was that Vortigern deserved the government, deserved the sceptre of Britain, but that Constance was unworthy of it. This encouraged Vortigern to show them still more favour, in order the more firmly to engage them in his interest. And when, by these practices, he had made them entirely his creatures, he took an opportunity, when they were drunk, to tell them that he was going to retire out of Britain, to see if he could get a better estate. For the small revenue he had then, he said, would not so much as enable him to maintain a retinue of fifty men. Then, putting on a look of sadness, he withdrew to his own apartment, and left them drinking in the hall. The Picts at this sight were in inexpressible sorrow, as thinking what he had said was true, and murmuring said to one another, Why do we suffer this monk to live? Why do we not kill him, that Vortigern may enjoy his crown? Who is so fit to succeed as he? A man so generous to us is worthy to rule, and deserves all the honour and dignity that we can bestow upon him. Chapter 8 Aurelius Ambrosius and Uther Pendragon flee from Vortigern and go to Lesser Britain. After this, breaking into Constanza's bedchamber, they fell upon him and killed him and carried his head to Vortigern. At the sight of it, he put on a mournful countenance and burst forth into tears, though at the same time he was always transported by joy. However, he summoned together the citizens of London, for there the fact was committed, and commanded all the assassins to be bound, and their heads to be cut off, for this abominable patricide. In the meantime there were some who had a suspicion that this piece of villainy was wholly the contrivance of Vortigern, and that the Picts were only his instruments to execute it. Others again, as positively, asserted his innocence. At last, the matter being left in doubt, those who had the care of the two brothers, Aurelius Ambrosius and Uther Pendragon, fled over with them into Lesser Britain for fear of being killed by Vortigern. There they were kindly received by King Budes, who took care to give them an education suitable to their royal birth. Chapter 9 Vortigern Makes Himself King of Britain now Vortigern, seeing nobody to rival him in the kingdom, placed the crown on his own head, and thus gained the preeminence over all the rest of the princes. At last his treason being discovered, the people of the adjacent islands, whom the Picts had brought into Albania, made insurrection against him. For the Picts were enraged on account of the death of their fellow soldiers, who had been slain for the murder of Constans and endeavoured to revenge that injury upon him. Vortigern was therefore daily in great distress, and lost a considerable part of his army in the war with them. He had likewise no less trouble from another quarter, 
for fear of Aurelius Ambrosius and his brother Uther Pendragon, who, as we have said before, had fled on his account into Lesser Britain. For he heard it rumoured day after day that they had now arrived at man's estate and had built a vast fleet with a desire to return back to the kingdom which was their undoubted right. Chapter 10 Vortigern takes the Saxons that were newcomers to his assistance. In the meantime, there arrived in Kent three brigandines, or long galleys, full of armed men under the command of two brothers, Horsus and Hengist. Vortigern was then at Duroburnia, now Canterbury, which city he often used to visit and being informed of the arrival of some tall strangers in large ships, he ordered that they should be received peaceably and conducted into his presence. As soon as they were brought before him, he cast his eyes upon the two brothers, who excelled all the rest both in nobility and gracefulness of person, and having taken a view of the whole company, asked them what country they were and what was the occasion of their coming into the kingdom to whom Hengist, whose years and wisdom entitled him to a precedence, in the name of the rest made the following answer. Most noble king, Saxony, which is one of the countries of Germany, was the place of our birth, and the occasion of our coming was to offer our service to you or some other prince. For we were driven out of our native country for no other reason but that the laws of the kingdom required it. It is customary among us that when we come to be overstocked with people, our princes from all the provinces meet together and command all the youth of the kingdom to assemble before them. Then casting lots, they make choice of the strongest and ablest of them to go into foreign nations, to procure themselves a subsistence, and free their native country from a superfluous multitude of people. Our country, therefore, being of late overstocked, our princes met, and after having cast lots, made choice of the youth which you see in your presence, and have obliged us to obey the custom that has been established of old and us two brothers, Hengist and Horsus, they made generals over them, out of respect to our ancestors, who enjoyed the same honour. In obedience, therefore, to the laws so long established, we put out to sea, and under the good guidance of Mercury, have arrived in your kingdom. The king, at the name of Mercury, looking earnestly upon them, asked what religion they professed. "'We worship,' replied Hengist, "'our country gods, Saturn and Jupiter, and the other deities that govern the world, but especially Mercury, whom in our language we call Woden, and to whom our ancestors consecrated the fourth day of the week, still called after his name, Woden's Day.' Next to him, we worship the powerful goddess Friar, to whom they also dedicated the sixth day, 
which after her name we call Friar Day. Vortigern replied, For your credulity, or um, rather incredulity, I am much grieved, but I rejoice at your arrival, which, whether by God's providence or by some other agency, happens very seasonably for me in my present difficulties. For I am opposed by my enemies on every side, and if you will engage with me in my wars, I will entertain you honourably in my kingdom, and bestow upon you lands and other possessions. The barbarians readily accepted his offer, and the agreement between them being ratified, they resided at his court. Soon after this, the Picts, issuing forth from Albania, with a very great army, began to lay waste the northern parts of the island. When Vortigern had information of it, he assembled his forces and went to meet them beyond the Humber. Upon their engaging, the battle proved very fierce on both sides, though there was but little occasion for the Britons to exert themselves, for the Saxons fought so bravely that the enemy, formerly so victorious, was speedily put to flight. End of Book 6, Part 1